Well, good morning. We are in the midst of a sermon series this Advent on the glory of God, and it's our desire that this go from being kind of a vague religious idea to uh, a truth that really fuels the way we live our lives and, and the way we live intentionally. We live to the glory of God. Last week, we looked at 2 Corinthians 3, and we saw that in the New Covenant, God has this commitment to conforming us to the image of Christ, and he has this commitment to restoring in our lives the glory that was lost at the fall through, through sin. And uh, Paul stressed the depth of this transformation by saying that the Holy Spirit, who is put within us, trans- transforms us from one degree of glory to another. And among other things, what this means is is that we should not have small spiritual ambitions. It should not be our ambition to just get a wee tiny little bit more kind. Uh, We should have this, this great spiritual ambition to show kindness in a way that reflects the glory of God. It reflects His greatness. It reflects the weightiness of God's kindness to us. And the result, it's, it's a stunning thing, but the result should be that when people experience us, they actually experience the glory of God. People walk away saying, God is great. They see the greatness of God in our lives. This morning, we're going to discuss how this transformation shows up in the details of our lives. And the main text we'll look at is 1 Corinthians 10.31, where Paul said, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So he's going to talk about how in every detail of life, we should demonstrate and reflect the glory of God. Now, I don't know how that sounds to you, the idea that in all the details of your life, you should give glory to God. Depending on where your mind is and what your circumstances are, you might hear it a variety of different ways. And so if you're weary, for example, you just may say, really? I'm just trying to survive here, and now i got to pay attention to all the details of my life. Or if you're a perfectionist, you might feel stress with the idea, I need to perfectly glorify God in all the details of my life. Or if you're discouraged, you might hear that and just go, it's not going to happen. I'm not the type of person that can actually give glory to God in the details of my life. And so I, I just acknowledge this. I've thought those types of things myself at different times. I've felt those things. But I'd like to, to encourage us to see this, this text as really an invitation from God to participate with what he is already committed to doing in our lives. In the new covenant, he is committed to transforming us into the image of Christ, taking us from one degree of glory to another. And so when we give glory to God in the details of our lives, we're, we're, really, just, we're really just participating with him in this process. And eventually, by the transformation of the Holy Spirit, these ways of thinking and acting can become second nature to us. And we're going to talk about using our bodies. That's all we've got, really, for expressing ourselves in this world, using our bodies to give glory to God. And it can become second nature. It can become instinctive, intuitive to us to give, nature, give glory to God in all the details of our lives. And so I want us to consider um, the foundational command in 1 Corinthians 10, and then we'll look at a couple of specific applications in, in a couple of other places in the New Testament. But 1 Corinthians 10.31 speaks about whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 
Now, the context may seem a little bit obscure to you. So Paul is explaining to the Corinthians how they ought to think about food, specifically food that had been sacrificed to idols. Again, you may that may just sound very random and obscure, but in Corinth, many of the believers that Paul was writing to, many of them had grown up worshiping idols, literal, physical idols. And so, um, uh, one aspect of idol worship was to kill an animal, offer the meat to the idol, and then instead of it burning up like a burnt offering at the temple in the, the old covenant, they would take the meat and they would take it home and they would eat it, and they would serve it to guests. Some of the meat would go to the meat market. And so much of the meat that the Christians in Corinth had available to them had been sacrificed to idol. And so it was a valid question, is it permitted for Christians to eat such meat, food sacrificed to idols? And Paul writes that something may be permissible, but it may not be profitable when it comes to the kingdom of God. And that's the overarching concern that governs this issue, really really kind of every, every issue for the Christians. And we find this in verse 24. Paul says, let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. And so the first command is love God with all your heart, soul, and might. The second command flows from it, and it's like it, which is love your neighbor as yourself. And so when you think about what you're, you're permitted to eat or what's profitable to eat, you should ask the question, is this a way to express love to my neighbor? And so that's the, that's the overarching principle. And in an absolute sense, Paul says there is nothing wrong, absolutely nothing spiritually wrong with eating meat sacrificed to an idol. So this is what we read in verses 25 and 26. He says, eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's and all that it contains. And so there's nothing inherently wrong with eating anything that's sold in the market. Uh, you, you cannot unknowingly participate in idolatry by eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols. Now, earlier in the chapter, Paul said you should not join in pagan festivals and go to what he called the table of demons. You can't join in the Lord's table and in the table of demons. And so there, there are lines that shouldn't be crossed. But when it came to meat that was sold in the market, you don't need to try and figure out, has this been sacrificed to an idol? It's not as if the meat itself had been demonized somehow, and it's going to affect you spiritually. If, however, you enter into somebody's house, and they offer you meat, and they say, by the way, before you arrived, we sacrificed this meat to idols, Paul says, in that case, you are not permitted to eat it. Why? Because you don't want to give them the impression that you, uh, you approve of their worship of idols. And so, as you can imagine, this would, this would be an awkward moment, right? Uh, this could be a potentially offensive thing when you say, thanks, but I'm not able to eat what you're offering me because my loyalty is exclusively to Jesus Christ. Uh, since it's been sacrificed to your idol, I, I don't feel like I can, can eat what you're offering me. And so Paul, in Paul's mind, it was worth, worth risking offending a person because of the larger issue of his or her salvation. And so in the New Covenant, there is not a list of acceptable foods and a list of prohibited foods. Rather, the guiding principle is whether or not eating a certain food 
expresses love for one's neighbor, and as he says in verse 31, whether or not eating a certain food gives glory to God. And so this is what he writes. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And so Paul advocates uh, what, what somebody told me after first service is situational awareness. And so you're supposed to evaluate the situation. And you don't merely ask the question, am I permitted to eat this meat? And so in an absolute sense or in a vacuum, yes, you're permitted, permitted. But since we don't live in a vacuum, we also have to ask the question, will it bring glory to God? Will it demonstrate the character of God in the most radiant way? Will it reflect that he is a God who is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness? Will eating this meat reflect that, that God wants people to understand that Jesus took on flesh and blood and died for our sins so that we might be restored in our relationship with him? The following two verses suggest that Paul is thinking especially about the salvation of those who would be affected by our behavior. He says, give no offense Either to, either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many so that they may be saved. And so doing all to the glory of God means taking into account uh, the, the response of both believers and unbelievers and not hindering them from experiencing the salvation that's offered in Jesus. And so we live in a way that demonstrates the greatness of God, the heart of God. And as we've been talking about, this means responding differently in different circumstances. So it doesn't mean lowest common denominator. Let's figure out what everybody in the church can agree with and we'll only do that. It means no entering into every situation and ask ask the question, what will give glory to God? Now, in some cultures and some parts of the world, meat sacrifice to idols is every bit as issue as much an issue as it was in Corinth in Paul's day. Not really aware that's a huge issue here in Manhattan, right? But that doesn't mean that we don't have to think about whether our eating and drinking gives glory to God, because we do. Uh, we need to have we need to eat in such a way that gives glory to God. For example, I've got a friend who is vegetarian. And his, his conviction is that he should not eat meat. Basically, it's a way for him to identify with the poor around the world who don't have access to meat. And so it's not a, a conviction about health or, or anything like that. It's just his way to identify with the poor. His wife does not share that conviction. And so their, their shopping and their cooking is rather interesting. But it's a beautiful thing because they respect each other. They encourage each other in different ways. They give glory to God through their eating. When it comes to drinking, again, the, the issue that comes to mind, obviously, is, is alcohol. If you have the freedom to, uh, to enjoy alcoholic beverage in moderation, uh, there will be times when you need to restrict that freedom uh, out of deference to someone else. You don't want to cause someone else to stumble by, by your, your, your freedom there. And so uh, there are issues we need to think through, what we eat and drink, how we eat and drink. Nevertheless, the, the command is much broader. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 
everything we do should be able to say, God, I do this as an expression of you, as, as a way to express to you, I appreciate your greatness, your generosity, your goodness, your beauty, your radiance. And I, and I, I think about my neighbor in this as well. I want to do what is good for them. So the details of our lives should demonstrate how glorious God is. And so let's consider a couple of applications of this principle in the New Testament. Sometimes it's very explicit, do this to the glory of God. And so it's explicit some places, but it's really implicit everywhere. You just find it all over the New Testament. The first passage I want us to look at is 1 Corinthians 6 and giving glory to God through our bodies. And Paul is discussing the issue of sexual immorality, specifically prostitution. What he says here would apply to all forms of immorality, um, having relations with someone to whom you're not married. And so this is the conclusion of his argument. It's in 1 Corinthians 6.18. He says, flee immorality. There's nothing complicated about that, right? He's saying, don't stay around, don't try to resist and and try to be strong. No, run as if your hair is on fire. Flee immorality and uh, very, very simple, right? Very easy to understand. Very hard to practice at times because of the habits of the flesh. The second statement's a little bit more complicated. He says, every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. And we won't take time to explore the different options. Scholars have different understandings of this, but everybody agrees that Paul is saying that that immorality is uniquely self-destructive to a person's body. When When you commit immorality, you violate your body in an especially uh, grievous way, especially if you're a Christian. If you are are united to Christ, you're one with Christ, and then to unite with with someone to whom you're not married, then that's an especially uniquely self-destructive act. We come to verse 19, and for the sixth time in this chapter, Paul asks, do you not know, which implies you really should know this. He says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. And the word he uses for temple there is is the word for the, the inner sanctuary or the holy of holies. So it's not the whole temple complex, but it's the holiest place. And earlier in chapter 3, I believe he said that the the body of Christ is the temple of the Holy Spirit. But here he says that Christians individually are temples of the Holy Spirit. And so just as God dwelt in the temple in Jerusalem in the Old Covenant, now God dwells in the body of the individual believer in the New Covenant. And just as the temple in the Old Covenant belonged to God... It couldn't be used for any and every purpose. You couldn't just open up the Holy of Holies for a meal or for recreation. It had a very specific God-centered purpose. In the same way, uh, the body of the believer in the new covenant belongs to God, and it can't be used for just any purpose. And so look at verse 20 again. He says, for, here's his rationale, for you have been bought with a price. That's the language of redemption. Uh, The implication, you have been bought at a very high price. It was uh, God's one and only son who paid for your sin and redeemed you back. Now you belong to God. And so he says, therefore, glorify God in your body. 
He's saying that we should use our bodies in such a way that reflects the beauty and the impressiveness of God. We should use our bodies in a way that reflect, I belong to God exclusively, not partially, not occasionally, but I belong to God. I like uh, Dallas Willard's paraphrase of this verse. He says, a price has been paid for you, so make your body a showplace of God's greatness. Make your body a showplace of God's greatness. And when you think about it, that's what Christmas, the very first Christmas, was all about. It was about God, Jesus Christ, becoming one of us, taking on flesh and blood, uh, taking a body like ours, and then showing the greatness of God through his body. And you read the Gospels, and it talks about Jesus using the members of his body. And, and I'm going to push us to think about this very literally, very specifically, very tangibly today, as opposed to glorify God somehow. I'm going to say, use the members of your body. I believe that's what the New Testament urges us. Use the members of your body, your eyes, your hands, your feet, uh, to, to, to glorify God. And so think about Jesus' life. He showed the compassion and the care of God. He used his hands when he touched the leprous man. He didn't always touch the, the leprous person when he healed them, but it's in uh, Mark 1, he touched the leprous man. Uh, he showed the truth of God when he used his mouth, his lips. He, he spoke truth to disciples and to the crowd. Think about the Sermon on the Mount. He used his hands, he used his arms to show the holiness of God when he made a whip and he drove the money changers out of the temple, John 2. He showed the heart of God, he used his eyes, he used his face when he wept outside the tomb of Lazarus. He showed the greatness of God, God is a God who weeps with those who weep. He showed that God notices people who suffer in silence when the woman, she pushed through the crowd and she touched the hem of his robe. And Jesus said, who touched me? And the disciples said, all sorts of people touched you. He said, no, I felt the power leave me. And so he stopped, he turned around, he looked at the woman and he spoke to her. He pronounced uh, salvation in her life. And, of course, Jesus glorified God. He showed the greatness of God in his body, the way he suffered through his trial, his, his uh, execution. And so these are ways that we can imitate Christ. These are ways that we can use our bodies to show the greatness of God. And so in the long, in the long term, this means that, that the patterns of godliness become habituated in our, our very bodies. This means that our words, our facial expressions, our body language, our touch, our actions, our, our service through our bodies, they express love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control in ever-glorious ways. We express the greatness of God just, just habitually and instinctively through our bodies. In the short term, this means training ourselves. It means consciously employing the members of our bodies in habits that glorify God. And this is how this can be an on-ramp to a more glorious way of living, okay? And so even if you don't feel like it, even if you don't feel very spiritual or very mature, 
You can do this. Paul said, don't present the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, saying, here you go, sin. Use my body however you want. But rather, present the members of your body to God as instruments of righteousness. God, use my hands. Use my eyes. Use my words, my feet to to show how great you are to people all around. And so Paul said, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. Okay, most sacrifices, the sacrifice in the Old Testament, they were killed, but we are a living and holy sacrifice. And so I I would encourage you to notice what you do with your bodies, okay? What do you do with your body? When somebody offends you, how does your body respond? Okay, and so, so some people, and some of you used to do this, somebody offends you, you punch them, okay? You can, you can be aggressive with your body. More often, as Christians, we're a lot nicer. We express disgust through our, our facial expressions, through our body language. We can get kind of aggressive in the way that we, we respond. But notice your body and consider the possibility that you can actually give glory to God through the members of your body. And so if you want to, you can do this. And so think about your tongue. James wrote that the tongue is a very small part of the body, but it can it gets set on fire by hell itself. It can be used for great evil, but it can also be used for great good. So before you have coffee with a friend, before you go to work, before you sit down at the, the breakfast table, present your tongue to God and say, God, I want you to use my words. I want you to use it to meet the need of the moment, to give grace to those who hear. And so it's, it's an offering. God, use my tongue. Your hands, instead of mindlessly doing the dishes, dishes and grumbling inwardly or mowing the yard or whatever you do with your hands, say, God, I offer this as a, as a spiritual sacrifice acceptable to you. May people be blessed by my service. Present your eyes to God. Of course, we should avoid looking at the wrong things, but we can purposefully notice the right things. In our own homes, we, we, we start with our own households. Notice the needs of the people around you. Instead of taking for granted, notice the people around you. Notice the people in your neighborhood. What, what are their needs? Again, we do this, Jesus, if we imitate Christ. When you go to, work, to the workplace, uh, do you notice the needs of the people around you? In the grocery store, the people that serve you there, do you notice? Do you express care? So we use our eyes. We employ our bodies when it comes to prayer, standing, raising holy hands, as, as Paul said in 1 Timothy 2, kneeling, use your body to express the greatness of God in prayer. Uh, we, we, our bodies are, uh, uh, we have stewardship over our bodies. So the way we eat, exercise, rest, and sleep, these are ways that we give glory to God. We acknowledge, God, you've given me this body for a finite amount of time. I want to use it for your glory. And so, th- so these are ideas. Again, I would, I would encourage you. This is not some burdensome regulation you have to do. These, this is an invitation. We can glorify God through our bodies. In this way, we participate with God. We move from one degree of glory to another. Well, our last uh, 
The last section here, let's think about glory to God through thanksgiving. I want to read a, a passage in, in Luke 7, and this is when Jesus healed the, uh, the ten lepers. And notice the connection between giving thanks to God and giving glory to God. We read this in Luke 17, verse 11. While Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, ten leprous men who stood at a distance met him. And they raised their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priest. And as they were going, they were cleansed. Now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him. And he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed, but the nine, where are they? Was no one found who returned to give glory to, to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Stand up and go. Your faith has made you well. And so only one man gave glory to God by falling on his face and giving thanks to Jesus. Uh, and, and Luke makes a special point of saying he was a Samaritan. He was an outsider. He was a person who, who didn't have all the advantage of the, the Jews living in, in Israel. And the tragic irony throughout the Gospel of Luke is that those who had the most spiritual advantages, they missed, they experienced the grace of God, but they missed it, and they failed to give glory to God. They failed to, to live this life of thanksgiving. And that was the case with the nine. They experienced blessing and healing from Jesus, but they did not give glory to God because they did not return and give thanks to Jesus. And so this is a model for us, right? We can repent like the nine when we have, have failed to notice and failed to give thanks to God, but we can be inspired and motivated by the one who did return and give glory to God. If we simply slow down, take time to notice the blessing of God, the gifts of God, the beauty of God that surrounds us. The heavens are declaring the glory of God. I mean, if we just notice and give thanks, we can give glory to God. We actually can. A couple of weeks ago, I found this book on my shelf at home. It's a long story how it got there, but it's, uh, many of you, I think, have probably read this book. It's by Ann Voskamp. It's called A Thousand Reasons, and it's this book where she decided she was going to write down a thousand things for which she was thankful, things like the, the way the light hits the bubbles in, the, in the, the suds in the sink, this kind of thing. It's very poetic, but it's a powerful, very compelling argument that our lives change when we become people who give thanks, when we notice what God has done and we just give thanks. And so she tells this account, she was in the kitchen of a friend and her friend looked at her that day and she said, you're different. And Ann Voskamp replied, I am? And she said, yes, something's different. Is it that list you've been making? This is about several months into this list-making process. And she thought about it, and she said, yes, it's the list. And this, this friend saw hope in her eyes for the first time. 
And so we can give, she was giving glory to God. She was acknowledging God's greatness in all these really small and some, some large way. But she had experienced all this loss and all this grief, but she was transformed as she gave glory to God. You know, Christmas, the holidays, it can be a tough time for, for a lot of people. If you've experienced a lot of loss, if you're in a, a place of grief right now, uh, giving thanks may not seem like an obvious place for you to go. A lot of times when we're in pain and we're suffering, we, we don't think to give, give thanks to God. We're, we're just preoccupied with other things. Sometimes it might even feel like I'd be hypocritical because I don't feel thankful. So how can I give thanks to God? But scripture suggests and experience suggests that even when we're suffering and even when we're in, in tough, tough circumstances, God is still good and God is still giving good gifts. And it's possible to notice and acknowledge the beauty of God, the goodness of God, even in the midst of pain and grief. And so I would like to invite you, this week especially, uh, would you give glory to God by giving thanks for the great and for the small things that you see all around you? And so I would encourage you to notice, first of all, the people that you live with, the people in your household, the people that you're around the most, as imperfect as they are, you can give thanks to God for such people. You really can. And that glorifies him because you're acknowledging his greatness. You can give glory to God this week by noticing the beauty all around you. in Grand ways and tiny expressions of beauty. Notice the food that you have to eat. The abundance that we have. And give thanks. Clean water. You ever stop and, and praise God for the blessing of clean water that we have in such abundance. We give glory to God by noticing his character throughout Scripture when we give thanks. And I would encourage you this week, fix your eyes on Jesus and notice he's a good shepherd. He really is. He takes care of you. He protects you. He provides for you. You give glory to God when you give thanks for your Savior. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we ask that uh, this week we would be people who give you glory, very intentionally give you glory in whatever we do. God, we pray that this would become second nature for us. God, for people who are discouraged or weary, God, would you give them a vision, a glimpse of what this might mean to exert the effort to give you glory in small and great ways. God, we pray that you show us how to give you glory through our bodies. God, prompt us to give thanks. We pray that we would give you thanks directly and we would express that thanks, thanksgiving in conversations this week. God, you are glorious and we want to notice, we want to experience it, and we want to be transformed. And so give us the will to participate in this process. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.